Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Electing the Gilded Age Senate, Corrupt Bargain or Anti-Populist Bulwark? The Gilded Age saw the United States Senate reach the very peak of its institutional power. With its tight control over presidential appointments and patronage and its stable, deliberate, and usually Republican character, It won admiration from such foreign observers as British Ambassador James Bryce, who saw it as a great calming rock in a raging democratic sea. In its control of foreign policy and the approval of treaties, it often defied presidents, reaching its apogee in the rejection of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. But accusations of rampant corruption and complaints on the fact that senators were chosen by state legislatures rather than the people Mm -hmm. led to increasing cries for reform culminating in the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which ensured that the whole people of a state directly chose their senators. But how exactly were senators chosen in state legislatures before the amendment? What were their qualifications and their goals? What problems did this system create and what solutions were proposed aside from direct election? And did the 17th Amendment really solve them? With me today to discuss these questions and more is Professor Wendy Schiller of Brown University, co-author of Electing the Senate, Indirect Democracy Before the 17th Amendment. Wendy, welcome. My pleasure to be here, Avi. Pleasure's all mine. So let's start with the the very basics. How were senators supposed to be elected to the the Senate uh, according to the original founding plan of the country? And what had changed in this system by the time of the Gilded Age? So, Avi, uh, originally in the Constitution, it has nothing specific, just state legislatures shall select uh, their senators. There was no procedure uh, that was included directly in the Constitution for how state legislatures should do this. And by the time you get to about 1866, you have very different procedures. State legislatures meet at different times. They have different majority thresholds. In other words, what would constitute being nominated for a contest for, to be a U.S. senator? or What constitutes winning the seat? There was no standardization. So it comes to a head, as I said, in the mid-1860s, after the Civil War, the state of New Jersey has a senator, John Stockton, not to be confused with the famous Utah Jazz basketball player, Uh, who's elected to the Senate, but New Jersey has all sorts of thresholds, caucus nomination procedures, uh, and it looks as if there is a lot of corruption in this election. And the Senate raises a question about whether they should seat John Stockton. uh, And they ultimately, with John Stockton there, actually, you know, sort of saying, I got elected to the Senate, I should be here. uh, And they eventually decided not to seat John Stockton and to pass 
a standard procedure for all state legislatures uh, to elect their senators. So um, it would be basically the second Tuesday after the state legislature comes into session. It's very important, Avi, to remember or recall that some state legislatures, like Southern legislatures, came in in April, whereas others started their session in January. Typically, the Senate term started on March 3rd or 4th uh, uh, in those days. So if you met in April, you missed the deadline. Uh, so there were all sorts of complications. Nonetheless, uh, the Congress did not change when state legislatures could meet, but they basically said the second Tuesday after you convene, the House and the Senate shall meet separately at noon uh, to elect a senator. And that senator had to be chosen by a majority of the members of the House and the Senate at the same time, separately voting at noon. And the next day, they will all convene in a joint session together and ratify or approve that selection. And what the book with Charles Stewart and I show is that, you know, basically about 70% of the time, that seemed to work okay. But 30% of the time, over 700 elections in our data set from, um, from 1871 to 1913, um, that worked okay. But in the other 30%, essentially, there was lots of fighting. And they didn't pick the same person with a majority vote on the first day of voting. And they had to continue to vote, sometimes voting as many as 200 times to try to elect a senator uh, that could pass both chambers. That sounds pretty frustrating. And indeed, uh, as I read your book, I noticed if I were a, a resident of a state, regardless of what my politics were, I guess I'd be very frustrated at the idea that one or maybe both senators who are supposed to represent my state are taking so long to get seated. Um, but going to another question, what was the sort of your average senator, Republican or Democrat, what were their on average, what were their qualifications? How did they become candidates? How did they manage to secure a majority and how did they manage to secure reelection in an age when, uh, it wasn't the average voter you needed to court, but the average state legislator. Avi, it's, it's so important to think about this question of how senators were elected and the fact that we passed a constitutional amendment, the 17th Amendment, to change that process um, and make sure, uh, this is in 1913, and make sure that individuals could directly elect their senators. And that was thought to be a way of making the Senate more open, more responsive, um, more, more popular, meaning that, you know, you could be anybody elected to the Senate, uh, breaking down barriers, making it less expensive to run for Senate. Uh, it turns out over, you know, the previous hundred years since that's amendment was passed, not a lot of that happened because the dynamics of getting to the Senate were really quite similar uh, to today. So political parties started to really cement in the United States starting in the 1870s. You know, the Republican Party comes into fruition right before the Civil War, really cements itself, as you said, and controls the Senate for a long time. The, Democratic Senate, the uh, Democrats are really in the South and somewhat in the West. Republicans are in the North and the Midwest. And you have a, a few parties that spur, you know, some change in the, in the 1890s and 1900s. But essentially, we have a two-party system. And as the government grows, federal government grows relatively small, but state governments grow, populations grow, more government services are needed. And as you noted in the beginning of this podcast, more jobs are associated with controlling state government. 
That meant parties had patronage, which meant they controlled votes. And so they could get people to vote for state legislators who would then ostensibly vote for particular individuals that wanted to go to the U.S. Senate. The parties really tried to control that nomination process. It wasn't primaries at the time. It was really who do we you know, know who's in our class uh, in terms of economics, who's a business person. So the background of people who get to the Senate is very similar to today. They're members of the House of Representatives, having already gotten through that gateway to get elected directly, or they're governors, mostly of small states that want to go to the Senate, attorney generals, judges, um, lawyers, <clears throat> or wealthy business people. And really, the composition of the Senate in those days, about 44% of senators were House members. Today, somewhere around 54% of senators have been House members. So it's not that different. And then you see in the Senate, we have people who are celebrities, we have people who are wealthy, who choose to run, um, and who did the same thing then. Uh, Courting the state legislators also meant courting the party officials. And you see, when these elections went smoothly, it meant that a party had really tight control over those state legislators. uh, And those state legislators did the party's bidding. But there was always money lurking in the background. There was always money influencing decisions. It was either funneled through the party bosses, so to speak, or it was given to state legislators literally in the state legislature as they were voting for Senate. And there's documentation, there are hearings into bribery, there's uh, autobiographies, there's newspaper coverage of literally bags of cash being presented to state legislators to say, vote for my guy, for the most part, exclusively it was men being considered, for the Senate. And it broke open a little bit of this uh, party control. So when we have disrupted Senate elections or delayed Senate elections, in fact, sometimes deadlocked, not even sending any senator to the United States Senate, a couple of times, more than a few times in our in our data set, when that happened, it meant that one wealthy faction was bribing state legislators to vote for candidate A, and another faction was voting was bribing state legislators to vote for candidate B. And in fact, if the voting kept on going, Avi, you'd have to pay them again. You know, you paid them for their vote on t- you know on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, but if nobody got a majority, then you had to come back and vote the following week. They would ask for more money. So you have the beginnings of the role of money in electing senators, you know, way back in the past. And that that role has changed in terms of the way the money is translated and and transferred to candidates and to uh, to, uh, through PACs and interest groups. Um, But, you know, there was real campaign finance influence even even back then. You bring up an important point because uh, the Gilded Age is, of course, known in addition to all the people getting wealthy off of honest business, all the corruption that was going on. Based on your not your your work, uh, your studying your data sets, how common was? I guess I'll just divide it into two. Uh, George Washington Plunkett uh, famously divided uh, bribery from direct cash in hand to what he called honest graft, i.e., uh, various opportunities or I guess more quote unquote legitimate things. So. How common was it for bribery to be involved? And were there any particular states or region that were uh, subject to it? Or was it a national problem everywhere? So, Avi, the the bribery was sort of up the food chain. Um, and it depended on uh, the nature of the candidate's background. So sometimes businesses would find somebody they thought would be popular among state legislators and party 
people. And also, you know, as you get many more newspapers in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you know, you do start to appeal to the actual direct voter. In other words, the individual who's going to vote in a Senate election um, is maybe looking for, you know, for supporting a particular Senate candidate. So if you're wealthy enough, you would literally run for Senate outside of the state legislature, trying to elect individuals to the state legislature that would support you. The problem with that strategy was that if you didn't get enough support on the first ballot, you were out. So the person you supported to run for state legislature to vote for you was free to vote for somebody else. So it wasn't a really great strategy. But then there were people who became wealthy when they became senators, particularly in the West, because we have mining, particularly silver, gold, copper in particular. Um, and then what happens is that governments give you know companies certain monopoly rights over uh, natural resources, and the senators who are involved in lobbying for that frequently became on the went on the board of those companies, became shareholders of the companies. You know we didn't have a lot of SEC or anything like that, Securities Exchange Commission or or federal monitoring in those days. So you do see individuals who go to the Senate and are wealthier when they leave the Senate than when they arrive. The same is true of the House of Representatives. There's a, a, a Harvard political scientist, Jim Snyder, who has a very long paper on wealth accumulation among House members um, from about 1850 to about 1910. And it shows that being a member of Congress at this time was lucrative. Uh, you didn't get paid a lot in salary, but you did have a lot of inside trading and opportunities. And this gets to the question that you posed about how to get reelected. This is, I don't know, I would call it an irony or a surprising result is that senators actually were relatively responsive to their state constituents and state needs. They did help elites clearly, uh, and they got wealthy off those efforts. But if there were opportunities for economic growth for the state, or somebody needed even uh, you know, access to a port, for example, or a new bridge being built, or a new road, or a new post office, or something like that, Senators were quite active in sponsoring legislation and trying to push it through committee and pass it. And when they ran for re-election, even though they were running for re-election for the state in the state legislature, they would campaign on the things they had brought home to the state. Uh, so that's really interesting. There was a sense of sort of making sure there was external pressure on the state legislature to re-elect them. And very important for readers, uh, listeners and readers of the book to know is that state legislatures were not, didn't stay very long. They had got elected, maybe they stayed one term, maybe two terms. 67% of state legislators only served two terms. That's two or four years in office. And that meant they were gone by the time the senators sought re-election again. And 70% of senators during this time sought re-election. A lot of them, not quite as many as we have today, but quite a few. And so they um, knew they'd have a different audience in the state legislature six years after they were first selected. So they had to shore up their credentials and not just with wealthy people, but also in delivering for the state. So there was Senate representation even though you look at the elite corruption and the indirect nature of the electoral mechanism, they still believe that they had to deliver and have something to run on for re-election. That's very interesting. Um, and it actually uh, is a good segue to my next question because um, uh, you mentioned a number of plans. Uh, I, I'd like you to elaborate on them. Things like the Oregon plan, uh, various plans to try and make Senate elections much more democratic. Uh, and I would, and I was wondering, first of all, what were the plans to make 
Senate uh, elections more democratic and, and functional? And what would would the would the opponents of such a move say? Look, yes, we're getting rich off the Senate. That's true, but we are looking after our people, and we are looking at representing our state. You guys are making mountains out of molehills. Well, the Oregon plan is sort of a famous plan. Uh, you know, the first direct primary was legislated uh, to start in 1904 uh, in Oregon, and it was uh, basically a referendum. It really wasn't a binding, uh, it had no binding power really on the state legislature. It was just a popular sentiment. And, and states like Nebraska, for example, did it for governor too. You know, that's a direct election, but you know, who do you want? Um, in, a, in a primary, quote-unquote, pre-testing kind of thing for public opinion. But the South and the North and the West were really different. The South had nominating conventions, and they really liked nominating conventions because they, by the time you get to 1900, with the exception of North Carolina and some other states, you really have a dominant Democratic Party in the South. And they wanted to get their business done in the convention within the party ranks rather than spilling over into the legislature. They weren't always successful, but they really tried to get this done. And they did not want to open it up. They didn't like the direct primary, uh, really, because they didn't want to disrupt that sort of private negotiation they could uh, undergo in in a, a state convention among party regulars. They also opposed anything that made voting more Democratic, little d, more open, because they didn't want poor whites voting. And we know from Jim Crow laws, they absolutely didn't want African-Americans voting. So anything that expanded the suffrage was something that the South opposed. The North was really, really interesting. The Republicans faced difficulty because they had the Farmers Alliance, the Populist Party. They had a couple of progressive movement. They had a couple of different burgeoning third parties that were winning seats in state legislatures. And so if you had a party primary and you could only register with the main Republican Party to vote in it, that actually benefited the Republican Party because it, it pushed out the other third parties that could uh, be operative in selecting senators in the state legislature. But even though the primary was adopted by state law, it often wasn't held. It was expensive to hold them. People weren't used to them. So from 1904 to 1910, I think there are only nine primaries held in the whole country. So we don't really get to really big primary use until the late 20th century. People think it was much earlier than it was. Um, so parties as a, a, a senator, Isaac Stevenson from Wisconsin, he was only a senator, I think, for one term. He was uh, he won his primary in Wisconsin. But then when he went to the state legislature, they denied him the seat. They just said, no, we're going to ignore the primary. We don't like you. Um, and then the next time around, they deadlocked. And then the next time they went to vote, they did ultimately select him, but it took multiple ballots. So even the state legislators, when they were in the state legislature, didn't really pay attention to the primary. And he famously wrote in his autobiography that uh, shrewd political operators will always find a way around direct democracy. In other words, they'll always find a way uh, to manipulate the primary. And we've seen that over time. We have primaries in the United States, but even at the presidential level, other levels, they're controlled by the party and the state legislature. And so they're not really controlled by the rank and file. So before we get into the question of primaries, is the question of uh, whether or not the 17th Amendment really solved the problems that uh, we talked about, I thought I might ask, I guess, a pretty obvious, instinctive question. Um, in order for the 17th Amendment to pass, you need 
or any constitutional amendment to pass, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress to send it to the state. Yet the Senate was almost very instinctively a small-c conservative institution which tended to kill many a bill and certainly many a constitutional amendment. How exactly did, uh, did supporters of reform get the Senate to agree to submit this question to the states, ostensibly undermining its own power? Well, I think what happens uh, in the Senate, uh, particularly uh, in the 1903-05, you get uh, increasing numbers of deadlock, actually. So the Western states have big problems with deadlock. Um, and then uh, states like Delaware deadlocked repeatedly. They either had no senators, I think between 1903 and 1905, or they just had one senator. And they had a tiny legislature. They had nine members of the, of the Senate and 27 members of the House. Uh, so tiny, but they still could not select a senator. And so it just seemed as though it would be dysfunctional. Um, and then because there was a lot of turnover in state legislators, senators, as you get into technology, more, more literacy, more newspapers, even the advent, you know, you start to think about radio uh, in the 20s, at least well after the amendments passed, but they're starting to look ahead and realize that the instability of the membership of the state legislature was more expensive for them that they had to re-persuade whole state legislatures and majorities six years later. Whereas if they were running um, just to have direct voting uh, in particular, then they could just, people didn't leave, leave the state. It wasn't as if you were appealing to a different set of actors. You had the same population in the state as you did six years before. So as it becomes more attractive to stay in Washington longer, the advent of refrigeration, I'm not making a joke about that. That makes a big difference in how long people stay in Washington. Um, and the, more, the bigger the state government becomes and the federal government, then it becomes more attractive. And you want to make this the most secure possibility for re-election. And it strikes them that the instability of the membership of the state legislature versus appealing directly, which you could do more even with transportation, you could get around a state more easily by the time you get to 1910, it becomes more attractive to them to keep their seats. To think about that, they also underestimated, I think they made a mistake here, they thought it would be cheaper. Because you don't have to, you can't bribe everybody in the whole state. What you can do is try to secure benefits from the government through tax redistribution, uh, although there wasn't that much taxation, that much income in those days. But even just, as I said, building bridges, getting breaks for companies, getting land rights, those sorts of things you could deliver and you could claim credit to everybody in the state. Um, you didn't have to pay people to vote for you, per se, the way that you did in the state legislature. And so I think they thought it was going to cost them less money to run for re-election. It turns out that it didn't ultimately, you know, the amount of money that was spent in, let's say, the year 1899 is about 399 million. You know, let's call it 400 million dollars across the board in terms of bribery and funding campaigns. Uh, and then by the time you get to, you know, 2014, 2016, 2020, you know, you're looking at 2.6 billion to run for Senate. So I think they did not anticipate that uh, it would still end up costing them a lot of money to raise money uh, to run. But I think they saw a, a greater scope of control for themselves in running for re-election, which was a more attractive proposition um, in the 1900s than they had under the indirect election system. Great introduction and a very persuasive explanation, which brings us to after the 17th Amendment. And I've seen 
two main arguments about how if the 17th Amendment is not actively harmful, it didn't really solve the problems uh, that it claimed to. And there's, first of all, the the argument about corruption. There was plenty of corruption in Senate elections afterward. Uh, Lyndon Johnson famously, uh, his first Senate election was uh, probably stolen. And more recently, uh, Rod Blagojevich imprisoned uh, governor of Illinois, who was pardoned by uh, Donald Trump, tried to sell a Senate seat. So it doesn't really seem like corruption left all that uh, uh, left after the 17th Amendment was passed. More importantly, though, while the 17th Amendment did finally create a sense of regularity, senators are elected on Election Day. There's no there's no months, weeks, months and years of deadlock. the, the democratic sense of it is kind of marred by the fact that Senate candidates are selected by primaries, which tend quite often to be low turnout events, uh, driven not by party stalwarts, but by the most excitable and sometimes by the most radical types. And when you're in a very deep red or a very deep blue state, they're effectively the election, like it or not. So... Are, is that situation really all that much better than a state where people were chosen by state legislatures for better or worse? Well, this is a big debate, Avi, about sort of the quality of the Senate and the quality of Senate representation. And it's hard to look at it today through the lens of such uh, stark polarization. But remember, in the 1880s and 1890s, this country was deeply polarized. The scope of the federal government was so much smaller that it didn't affect everybody's lives. But, you know, the issues of slavery and the issues of trade, in particular protectionism, and whether we got involved in world wars uh, off our shores, these were deeply polarizing events. So they were uh, dominant areas of the country with one party or the other, just as we have today. So that condition is really quite similar, except that it it, it bleeds into uh, so many more issues with the federal government being so much larger today. So... When you think about that, the question you're asking about sort of democratic participation, you know, people have a sense of whether they uh, have the opportunity to weigh in on American politics. And when you have the primary and people can vote to choose their candidate and then vote again directly for the Senate, it empowers them and encourages them, even though they don't always participate, to participate in politics. So there's sort of supposedly is a deeper legitimacy of government when you have more opportunities to vote for the people who will be occupying those seats of government. And that, I think, was the progressive idea behind direct elections. Um, and the issue now is state legislators are now saying some in some in some states are saying, let's go back to the 17th Amendment, give the choice of the Senate back to state legislators because we know what's best for the state. But the problem is that they're so polarized that if you did that, you would get an even more, some more starkly polarized Senate than you do today. The fact that senators are independently elected of their state legislatures gives uh, the possibility of more people in the state being represented on, an, on different dimensions of issues than if you just had it back in state legislat- uh, legislatures where those people are running really along stark party lines. So, so keeping it direct, I think, is important. Whether you think it's responsive or not, you know, gets to the wider question of, is the Senate really built for the 21st century? Is it built for a government this large? We have California with 38, 39 million people. We have my state of Rhode Island with just over a million people. Should you really just have two senators from each of these states? And is that really adequate representation? I think the issues are larger. 
And let me just also add that you're starting to see nonpartisan primaries, obviously California, and you're starting to see um, nonpartisan elections in California, right? The two top vote getters. You can run as a Democrat or Republican, but that is a not party primary. And you're seeing runoffs in other states as well, as we saw in Georgia. Uh, and that meant that extended that Senate election from November to January. And Louisiana extends its election, if you don't get 51%, uh, to December. So you're starting to see some of these states where conflict uh, is bubbling and is sustained by moving to runoffs, for example, and making people get majority, which is exactly what the system was when state legislators uh, were picking senators after the 1860s. You need that majority threshold because it sort of lends itself to legitimacy. We're seeing that a little harder to get across the board in a lot of states. And I wonder how that will affect sort of the stability of the way that we elect senators going forward in the future. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see how such things develop. Uh, and uh, we'll have to see if the proposed solutions or others uh, help resolve those issues. Professor Schiller, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner. Mm-hmm.